The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. The uh, Scottish pastor, Thomas Chalmers, said, quote, We need the expulsive power of an alien affection. We need that in us if we're going to be able to battle against the desires of the flesh. The expulsive power of an alien affection. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones illustrated that reality this way. He said, The way the dead leaves of winter are removed from some trees is not that people go around plucking them off. No, it's that the new life, the, the shoot that comes and pushes off the dead in order to make room for itself. In the same way, the Christian gets rid of all such things as bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking and all malice. The new qualities develop and the others simply have no room. They are pushed out and they are pushed off. And I put that illustration in the context of the local church and in our lives, in our relationships, we have these dead leaves on the limbs of our lives that show up in the form of evil thoughts and evil intentions and attitudes and sometimes actions that hurt others in our church family and other close relationships that we have. And we could try with all of our might and all of our detective skills to find all of those loose leaves and just go about plucking them all the day long. Or we could see the strategy that Peter gives us here in 1 Peter Chapter 2, he says, drink deeply of the nourishing, nutrient-filled fountain of God's goodness. That will cause us to grow. And as we grow, new leaves will bud and push out the old. The dead will fall away and the new will come. This is Peter's argument in the beginning of the second chapter of his letter to these dispersed believers across Asia Minor. There is a command here, really, to put away sinful attitudes and actions. But I hope that's not all that you'll walk away with this morning, is that I shouldn't have sinful attitudes and actions. He's calling us to love one another earnestly. That was what we saw last week. How the root of love was God's work of regeneration in us. Our being made new as a new creation, being born again. And we also saw that the fruit of that work is always love for the brothers. People who are born again, love. People that truly love are born again. Peter desired, we saw, that, he, that we would love above all. But here's the question in chapter 2. What happens if we don't? Or what happens when we don't? What if we look in our hearts and instead of finding that earnest love, we find malice and deception and hypocrisy? And if we, I, just, I pray that you would just take an honest look at yourself and, and realize those things are there. They're in my heart. They're in my life. Peter's writing to the Christians here in 1 Peter, not, not giving them a theoretical situation. Maybe we see envy there. We see envy that might even lead to slander. So is the answer merely stop? 
Stop doing that. Stop thinking that. Well, where do we find the power to do that? That's what this passage is going to show us. So chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Look with me there. This is God's word. Peter writes, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Here's the main point of our sermon this morning. If you want to write it down, you can take notes. There's some notes listed there in your bulletin. Here's what Peter's saying. Tasting the goodness of God towards us severs the roots of evil toward others. Tasting the goodness of God toward us severs the roots of evil towards others. Peter's just unpacking his call to love one another earnestly. What does that mean? Well, first he calls us to put some attitudes and actions away that destroy relationships and harm the church. So if you're taking notes, that's number one. We're going to just see the command to put away. Very relevant for us. Very relevant for me. There's some things that in my life, that in our life, that we need to put away. But he doesn't stop there. He also points to, number two, the power to put away. How do we put it away? How do we continually put these things away? He's going to show us the source for that obedience. One author said it this way, the command by itself can't help us. The gospel, however, grace, the spirit, and the affections that are created by the gospel can help us in the war against the flesh. And so Peter is equipping us for that war today, this morning. And so let's look and see how he does it. Let's look first at the command to put away. Number one, the command to put away. The first word there in chapter 2 is important. Look there at chapter 2, verse 1, that word so. It functions like the word therefore. It's, it's the same kind of the word. It functions in the same way. It points us back to Peter's description of every believer. So again, Peter is not just giving moral imperatives merely. He is doing that, but not merely. He's basing those imperatives on the new birth. His command to love, we saw last week, was rooted in our being born again. Having our souls purified and purified by obedience to the gospel, our conversion, our turning from our sin and putting our faith and trust in Christ alone. The imperishable seed of God, indestructible seed of God through the Holy Spirit, as the gospel is preached, changes us. It makes us progressively more like Jesus. And, and specifically, it does that by the way in which we love one another. So being born again enables us to do what Peter commands us to do here in verse 1. So don't forget that so there. So you need to do these things. So look at it again, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. The Bible often talks to Christians like this, talks to believers in this imperative kind of mood saying, put these things away. Things that used to mark you as a non-Christian, now you've been born again, 
But it doesn't say, now relax and go have fun. It says, put away now. Put these things away. Romans 13, 12. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Hebrews 12, 1. A verse you're very familiar with probably. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. James 1.21, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Paul just kind of summarizes it in Ephesians 4.22, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Putting off in the Christian life is not like a one-time event where you take off a coat and you set it down. It is that. There should be a specific time when you, you, you say, I'm putting away, I'm turning from this life of sin. But it's more than that. It's also a daily, regular, cumulative putting off. It's like weeding a garden. You don't just get your garden ready to go in the springtime and then walk away and just see how it's doing at the end of the summer. Like you, you have to constantly be having your eye on it, constantly there weeding out those weeds or they will choke out the flowers or the plants or whatever it is you're trying to grow. Now, Peter has some specific weeds in our kind of garden in mind that, he, he, that need pulling. And this is the context of in the local church. So, so this is not a theoretical idea. This is here among believers. He's going to shift his focus on how believers love and live with unbelievers in a section coming up, beginning in verse 11, all the way to chapter 4, verse 11. So he's about to, to enter into that, okay? But here he's focusing on the way we interact with each other. Sins that tear at the relational fabric of relationships in the church family. And I think they're all mainly attitudes. They're mainly dispositions of the heart. At least they start there, except for that last one, slander. They're heart conditions. They're thoughts and attitudes. But I think there is a connection between malice and deceit and hypocrisy. And then it seems maybe envy and slander are also possibly connected. So think about each one of these things that we're called to put off. Malice. Malice is a disposition of the heart to do evil. A positioning of the heart, a posture of the heart to do evil. In general terms, the word means something just like wickedness. And here it's directed wickedness toward others. So it's a thought leading to actions that desire to hurt others. You could say someone is mean-spirited or malicious to others. Isn't it interesting that he's addressing this to the church? Friends, we need to examine our hearts this morning for malice. Not, not to assume that, well, that's obviously not talking about me. Not to assume that we are just simply innocent of that. Even as we read this list of sins that Peter presents, he goes on from the general to the specific. You see how quickly this list becomes personal. And the first offshoot or example of malice that he gives, I think, is deception, deceit. So deceit is, 
is not an action. Again, kind of a, a posture of the heart that can show itself up and show up in our actions. It, <clears throat> it's a desire that we have that will give birth to deceitful actions, to deception. And that desire is to call people, to, rather to cause people to think something that isn't true. That's what deception is, is to cause you to think something that isn't true. And I can deceive you about a number of things. But Peter is calling us to love earnestly. So this is the opposite of earnest. This is the opposite of sincere. That's what deception is. Deception is not hard. If you're here and you're a sinner, which is all of us, you, you understand this. Deception is not hard. We can deceive someone about where we were last night, what we were looking at on our computer, how much money we make, how things are going in our life and our marriage. We can deceive our own spouse. You just go on and on and, and essentially trick someone to think something that's not true. But notice that Peter continues to whittle it down and he has a specific type of deception in mind. This is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is like a species of deceit which focuses on ourselves, deceiving you about me. I want you to think something about me that's not true. I don't really like who I am and I don't want you to see who I really am because I don't like it and I want others to see it. So I'll deceive you. I'll put on a mask. I'll put on a performance. I think this is rooted in that reality that we don't like what we see when we look at ourselves. And so we certainly don't others to, to see what we see. So we act in ways that, that present a deception about who we really are. I say one thing to this person, but I wouldn't say that to another person. I use one kind of language to this crowd, but another kind of language to another crowd. One thing from the pulpit, another thing at home. Our hearts are deceptive. Our hearts are wicked. And at some level, we, we know it. And so we want to pretend that, that, so that others will actually think that we're, we're not sinful. That's this deception at work through hypocrisy. It's like malice on defense. So I've got this malice at work, and I'm going to try to put up a smoke screen that shows I'm really actually much better than, it, than I am. But you can also play offense with our wickedness. And that's what I think those next two words are involving, envy and slander. So, so envy is more than just, I think, wanting something that another person has, so just kind of coveting. But it's actively hoping for the downfall of someone else. Actively wanting something bad to happen. Envy prefers the advancement of oneself to the joy of others. I would prefer to be recognized more than I would like to see you recognized. I would prefer to get the good grade more than I would like for you to get the good grade. We don't like it when good things happen to other people. And we're okay if bad things happen to other people. I wonder if you just honestly examine your heart if you see any of that there. Proverbs 14.30 says, Envy makes the bones rot. 
In Mark 15.10, we learn that it was envy that caused the religious leaders to, to deliver Jesus to Pilate. And what's your first thought when you hear about someone else getting a promotion? Someone else getting a new nice house with a pool. Someone else's church doing something awesome. Someone else's investment really paying off. Someone else's kids doing something amazing. Is it that you're immediately rejoicing with them? Praise God if it's so. If not, that's, that's envy. And I think it's envy that probably leads to the action that follows of slander. Envy tears people down in our hearts. Slander does it with our words. Slander can be subtle. It can be just an insinuation, kind of a well-timed word that might just create an impression. But the goal is to tear down. The goal is to disparage and to assassinate with our words. It could be subtle or it could just be blatant. So you see the application. It's very obvious. If you're a believer here, if you're a member of our church, if you're a Christian, put away these things. These sins are used by Satan to break up relationships in the local church. So Peter says, lay aside everything in your life that would quench the love for one another. What do you need to lay aside this morning? Where is there malice lurking in your heart? Is there something in your life where you would say deceit? There's this area, this corner of my heart where deceit is at work. There's this kind of ongoing false impression that I'm giving. Or maybe I'm, and so I don't want to do that. I'm just isolating myself completely. So I have no real relationships that are honest. How do you respond when other, others experience blessing? Maybe you find yourself regularly kind of critiquing people. Maybe it's not just in your heart. Maybe it's come out through your words in the form of slander. Let me just encourage you not to, not to tolerate and think that slander is okay. It can be deceptively innocent. Um, I really love that church and the people there. But I'm just really praying for the leadership. Maybe they're making some decisions I don't think are healthy. or And there's a culture there of X and Y or... This person's attitude is kind of fishy. Since sometimes, this is real talk here, <laughs> we've seen, and over the years of our church, and there's nobody specifically I have in mind, trust me, over the many years, 13 years of being here, sometimes when people have left, maybe they've left our church for a reason that we would say isn't a good reason. Or there was a relationship that wasn't right, and those folks that have left are still friends with current members. And you can kind of, kind of just from a vantage point see how that relationship continues and watch those members start to sour as they hear kind of a regular dose, a stream of slander. So be careful what you say for sure, but also be careful what you listen to and who you're listening to. Some people live to slander. And they, they, they live to tear down others. Envy is brightly burning in their hearts or they're deceived in other ways. Peter just simply says, put these things away. You've been born again. 
That's step one. Identify these sins in our lives and repent. Put them away. Okay, that sounds good. We've left the Bob Newhart desk. Stop doing that. So how do we go about doing it, Peter? How do we go about every day living with sinners in a church um, who we may not have everything in common with? How do we go about doing that? Well, that's what the last, last part of this sermon is about. The power to put it away. The power to put it away. This is very important. Very important. He gets to the main command, the main verb in this section. In other words, the thing that he's calling us to do kind of while we're, we're doing this, while we're doing this main verb that he calls us to, is to be putting off these other things, these relational sins of the heart. But if verse 1 is telling us to put off, verse 2 is telling us to put something on. <coughs> Look there. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Often in the New Testament, we find references to Christians as newborn babies or or infants. And usually that's a picture of immaturity. Uh, You need to to get off of the milk of the faith and get onto the meat of the faith. That is not what Peter is saying here. He is not making a point about maturity, but about longing and about craving and about desire. He sticks with this imagery of being born again. So just think about that. God's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Chapter 1, verse 3. Since you've been born again, love one another earnestly. Chapter 1, verse 23. And he's describing now all believers as babies who have been born again. We are born anew. Like, and like a newborn infant, we should long for spiritual milk. If you'd like to hear what it's like to have a newborn baby, to long for spiritual milk, I'm sure there are some mothers here that would volunteer to share a little bit of their experience with you. Maybe even they had that experience last night. And they could talk to you about what it's like to be woken up in the middle of the night by a child who's screaming for more milk. Newborn babies are completely dependent on their mothers. And I think that's the picture we need to get. Dependence. Believers are to be fully dependent upon God in every way. We never grow out of this. None of us will ever get to spiritual adulthood when it comes to this, where we say, I'm now independent from God and his word. I've grown up spiritually. No, no, we're talking about maturity, not independence from God. We never get to the point where we're so mature that we're independent from God and his word. So I think this reference here to pure spiritual milk is a reference to the word of God. That's what I think it is, the word of God. Because in context, it seems like he's just left that idea. He's just referenced the enduring, living nature of the Word of God in verse 25. In comparison to our mortal bodies. And it's through the Word, he said, through the Word of God, through the Gospel, that that we're delivered and we're born again. He said that in verse 23 of chapter 1. It's through the Word we're born again. And it's the same Word that, that caused us to be born again that sustains us. So that's what I think the, the milk is. And we learn something about this milk. It's pure. So, so this is in contrast, again, with the deceit that we just learned about. Mentioned in verse 1. This speaks to, I think, the trustworthiness of God's word. There are no impurities. There are no harmful additives. It abides without 
preservatives. I'm sure you've had the wonderful experience of discovering the milk was sour by tasting it. Like that's not fun. Or smelling it. That this is, this is a pure milk. Inerrant, infallible, without error, completely trustworthy. It's the pure milk of God. It's also spiritual, which I think can also mean rational or reasonable. Here Peter's connecting it, I think, to the breath of God when he says the spiritual, pure spiritual milk, showing that that God sanctifies us through it and it leads to spiritual growth. Listen, spiritual growth as a Christian isn't mystical. It's not mysterious. We're to long for and crave this pure, unadulterated word of God. One author says Christians are to be addicted to the Bible. It's the milk that grows us up into salvation. Again here, notice Peter speaks about salvation in future terms. He's done that before. He he doesn't mean to say that we're not saved now, but that final salvation, actual deliverance, is still in the future. We are saved we're being saved, and we will be finally saved. He says, 1 Peter 1.5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So there's great assurance there that we're, we're saved. We're being guarded by God for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. So, so the milk, God's word, becomes the substance of life. It's what we need to sustain and to spur on spiritual growth as we're growing up into salvation. The Christian life is kind of compared here to our physical lives. It's a dynamic, organic process. We're born, we eat, we drink, we grow, and then we die. Believers are born again nourished by the pure spiritual milk of the word that makes us grow and grow up into salvation. Beloved, that that should show us that spiritual growth isn't optional. Any more than eating or drinking today is optional. When was the last time, you know, I just really struggled to to eat and drink. I haven't eaten and and, and had anything to drink in months. No, I don't hear that a lot pastorally. I, I do hear, I haven't opened my Bible in months. Like I haven't, I haven't spent time with the Lord in, in a long time. It's not optional. What place does this crucial nourishing word have in your life? Are you yearning for it? Are you craving it? This is why we preach it on Sundays. It's why we read it out loud on Sundays. read a survey recently where, where most Christians, the only Bible reading they get, the only exposure to the Bible is, is its reading in church on Sundays. So we want to be sure that you're getting it at least here, but that you're also regularly feeding yourself on your own, nourishing yourself on the Word of God. As it's being taught in Bible studies, as it's being read in your own personal devotions, your own family devotions, listening to on audio, some of you do that, memorized. If you're trying to put away sins, Peter says, give yourself to the Word of God. But he's more specific than even that. And you don't want to miss how he clarifies this. How he clarifies this. Look at verse 3. If... Indeed, you have tasted that the Lord 
is good. Long for this pure spiritual milk, by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter's quoting here probably from Psalm 34, verse 8. We, we, we sang a song just a minute ago based on Psalm 34. This was our call to worship. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Uh, there's some discussion here in verse 3 uh, whether or not if in verse 3 should be since. So since you've tasted the Lord is good, I think the ESV probably has it right. Peter's not trying to sow doubts into our minds saying, well, if I'm if I've tasted the Lord, but I think he is assuming that Christians have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, but he wants us to go back to the well and be reminded and taste and see that the Lord is good. If you've tasted it, if you've tasted the goodness of the Lord, you will continually long for more and more of it. And I think he's saying you taste the word, the goodness of the Lord, particularly in his word, particularly in the gospel. The Word of God is always holding out the God of the Word. The goodness of the Lord shines forth from the Word of God. But we can certainly miss it. We can certainly miss it. I've been drinking coffee since I was about 19 years old. And I started with Folgers. And I don't mean to judge anybody in here who drinks Folgers on a regular basis. Um, I sounded really serious when I said that, but... We could just have a conversation about it later if you want to talk about other options. In the last 10 years or so, I've gotten into more kind of a specialty coffee. It's a little bit of a hole that I've fallen into, kind of single origin coffee. And I I remember the first time I was with friends that knew coffee and we were cupping coffee. And so they're like tasting it and talking about what's in it. And they just kind of turn to me and ask, so so how is it? And my answer is just really like, it's good. Mmm, I like it. It, to me, it just tasted, tasted like better than average coffee. But they were talking about strawberries and floral notes and hints of chocolate. And like, I just wasn't catching any of that. It took me a long time, and I'm still kind of working on training my palate to taste those flavors in different coffees. But they're there. And, and so the, the, the sweet, gracious goodness of God on display in the gospel, is there in his word. But it's not an automatic thing that we just open it and it's like, oh, praise God, from whom all blessings flow. We need God's help to taste it, to taste his goodness when we open his word. Sad story, I remember, of a man and a woman who ended up not being married, divorcing, And there was extreme bitterness in the relationship. And one of the members of that couple had hour-long devotionals every day. Hour-long devotionals, reading the Word. We need God's help to see His goodness in His Word. Remember what Peter's doing. He's showing us how to cut the root of sin toward one another. How to love each other. Namely, by keeping the goodness of God ever before us. So how do we do that? Let me just kind of tell you how I try to think through that. The first step, I think, is always prayer. I don't think we ever approach God's Word apart from prayer. Ever. It is no small thing in your personal devotions, 
in the prayer that I pray before I preach. That is not just a tradition. It is essential. The psalmist in Psalm 119, 18 shows us as he prays it. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. Why would he pray that? He's looking at words on a page. Because we're sinners and naturally hard-hearted. And we need God to open our eyes and our heart to see his goodness in his word. Or we'll open it and close it and just be in a hurry and go. Pray. Pray that he would open your eyes. Pray that he would open your heart. Pray that he would open your ears to see his goodness as you read his word, as you worship, as you listen to his word preached and read. Pray that his word would be clear from my mouth and from others who teach here. Pray. Next, when I read the word or I listen to it or hear it preached or taught and I see, I see sin in the word or I see sin described in a, in a sermon, I, don't, I try not as best I can to think about someone else's sin or to think about sin theoretically. I try as best I can to think about my own sin. The Bible says that we have all sinned. We have all rebelled against our good and powerful creator. And that sin is a personal act. It is my sin personally against a personal God. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to know that you have a personal outstanding debt to a holy God because you've ignored him and you've neglected him and rejected him and sought to replace him as the ruler of your life. That is just the truth. You need to make it personal. You need need to understand that we deserve God's just penalty for our sin. Everyone in this room does. He's holy. We are not. But listen to what Paul says in Titus. Titus 3 verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Do you just see how the goodness of God is so clearly revealed there in the gospel, in the face of Jesus Christ? Not only should you personalize your sin, And when you see sin in the Bible, you should personalize the grace that you see in the Bible. You should personalize the righteousness that comes from Jesus alone, who lived a life of righteousness in our place. And then he laid down that life as a sacrifice for me, for you. To take God's wrath for you, for me, that I would be saved. That I've been actually washed That you have been actually forgiven of your sins, cleansed by the Holy Spirit. That Christ was raised from the dead and one day you too will be raised to newness of life. Peter says if you've tasted that, if you experience that, if you taste that the Lord is good, you will not walk away saying, eh, but you'll want more. When you see the goodness of God in the gospel, you begin to see it everywhere. And you begin to 
sever the roots of malice and deception and hypocrisy and envy in your life. You begin to kill those sins, not just with greater effort, but with a greater joy, a better taste, with the goodness of God. I mean, none of us go to our favorite restaurants because we have to. It's not duty that makes me go to Torchy's Tacos. I go there because it tastes good. God's way tastes better. It's more satisfying. That's why we keep coming back to it. Satisfy your soul with the goodness of God and begin to, to, to understand and see that malice begins to taste bitter. Drink deeply of the goodness of God and deceit becomes useless. We can actually be who we really are because we're approved by God. We can put to death hypocrisy. Because it's not about approval from others. We don't have to please everyone. We don't need to pretend. God knows us. Every sin, every failure, every evil, and he accepts us in Jesus. Have you tasted that, that goodness of God in the gospel? The key to killing envy is the goodness of God. Then we can rejoice in his goodness to others. We don't have to slander and tear down, but we can edify and build up because we are made whole in Christ alone. We don't have a gap to fill of other people's failures. Taste and see that the Lord is good and you will begin to lose a taste for sin. And you'll long for more of the good stuff. This is what Chalmers means by an expulsive power of a new affection. This is how the dead leaves fall off. This is how you fight sin. You fight for joy. You fight to see and to taste the goodness of God. Is that... One author said, the command can't help us by itself. It's the gospel, the grace of God, the spirit, and the affections that are created by the gospel that can help us in our war against the flesh. The words from that old hymn sum up Peter's message well, I think. Just turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Beloved, savor the goodness of God towards you in the gospel of Jesus. Make it your practice to preach the gospel to yourselves and to look and to pray to see the goodness of God everywhere. To listen for it. To train yourself to see it and watch for it and that your taste buds would be ready for it and that you would be losing a taste for evil, especially evil toward others. That that would grow bitter and unsatisfying. You begin to, to see with the psalmist there in Psalm 19, verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. May it be so for us. Let's pray.
Lord, we ask that you would take this word and make it not a passing thought or reality for us, but Lord, that it would stay with us as long as we're on this earth. And that we would never be just about trying to conform our conduct to some other standard. But there would be an expulsive, growing, greater affection that would push out the sins that so easily entangle us. That we would begin to to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And others would see and give glory to you. Lord, protect us from envy and slander. Protect our our hearts and our minds from hypocrisy and deceit and malice. And may we be ever satisfied in Christ. Pray that would show itself in the way that we love one another most clearly. The way that we sing here in just a second, the way that we sing to you would be an expression of our understanding, our tasting of your goodness. Lord, you've been so good to us. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the Great Commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.